0: وَالصَّلَاةُ وَالسَّلَامُ عَلَىٰ عَبْدِ اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ نَبِينَا مُحَمَّدُ وَعَلَىٰ آلِهِ وَصَحْبِهِ أَجْمَعِينَ أما بعد. So we're continuing on inshallah ta'ala with our discussion regarding the status of the sunnah and how the sunnah was recorded and how it came to be preserved. And I wanted to conclude the discussion from last week regarding the Status of the sunnah in the eyes of the companions and the tabi'een So with regard to the companions There's no doubt that the Prophet sallallahu alaihi before that There's no doubt that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Commanded us to take his sunnah as we heard And we covered some of the ahadith in this regard in the previous session. But there are other ahadith which give us or tell us the necessity of following the Sunnah. From them is the statement of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Sallu kama ra'aytumuni usalli Pray as you see me praying. So, since the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam commanded us to pray as we see him praying. That shows us that there is no means for our prayer to be accepted, except by following the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. And likewise his statement with regard to the hajj, anni Take your rights of hajj from me now if you want to kind of get to the detail in this you have to think about it like this the Salah and the Hajj are two of the five pillars of Islam The Salah and the Hajj are two out of the five pillars of Islam we all agree that the five pillars of Islam are the five most important external actions that a person can do in, in the whole of the religion of Islam and if they are not explained in the Qur'an, then what do you think about those things that are less important than them? In other words, if it is not possible for us to pray based on what we read in the Qur'an, and it's not possible for us to make hajj based on what we read in the Qur'an, then wallahi, how is it possible for us to do anything after that? Except by joining between the Qur'an and the sunnah of the Prophet wasallam? Salu kama usalli Pray as you see me praying And his statement Khudu anni Manasikakum Take your rights of hajj from me So if we need the sunnah In the pillars of Islam Then we certainly need the sunnah In those things which are Less important and less significant Than the pillars of Islam And we heard The statement of some of the salaf With regard to Uh, If you look at the Qur'an, would you find that Dhuhr was four raka'ah Would you find that Maghrib was three raka'ah And that you read aloud in the first two So if the Qur'an doesn't give us the full picture With regard to the prayer And with regard to the hajj Then for sure, what is even less important than those two things Is going to be even less likely to be explained in detail What about the status of the Sunnah and the position of the Sunnah in the eyes of the companions? And this is all an introduction to the topic, but it's important because it gives us uh, it gives us a, a feeling of how important the Sunnah was to the early generations of Islam. And if something is important, then certainly they would have given every effort and every bit of their energy to be able to preserve and to be able to transmit that sunnah to us so al-imam al-bukhari narrated from abdullah ibn umar radiyallahu anhuma that he said it takhadha rasulullah it takhadha rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam khataman min dhahab the prophet sallallahu alayhi messenger of allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam took a, a seal, and it was a ring, and with the ring he would seal his, uh, his letters, and if somebody this is how they used to verify things back in those, in those days, if someone would write a letter, there would be a seal, usually a ring, and the person would take the, the person who wrote the letter, or the letter was written for them would take their ring and dip it in wax or something similar, and push it onto the letter to seal it. The Prophet ﷺ, he took this ring made out of gold. So the people took rings of gold. Imagine this, the first day the Prophet Sallallahu comes out with a ring of gold All of the companions go and get a ring of gold Then the Prophet Sallallahu cast away his ring And he said, Inni lan abada." I will never wear it again after Allah Azzawajal revealed to him that gold is forbidden He said, I will never wear this ring made of gold again Abdullah ibn Umar said, فَنَبَذَ النَّاسُ khawatimahum." So all of the companions got rid of their ring of gold. Look at the level to which they used to follow the Prophet ﷺ. Add to that while we're talking about Abdullah ibn Umar. That it's narrated that Abdullah ibn Umar, رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُمَا used to walk in the footsteps of the Prophet ﷺ. And if he saw the Prophet ﷺ go around a tree and come down the path, he would go around and come down the path. Add to that what Imam Abu Dawood narrated from Abu Sa'id Al-Khudri. That he said, بَيْنَمَا رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ يُصَلِّ بِأَصْحَابِهِ إِذْ خَلَعَنَا عَلَيْهِ when the Prophet ﷺ was praying with his companions one day, he took off his shoes because his habit was to pray in his shoes. He used to pray in his shoes. He took off his shoes. فوضعهما عن يساره. So he put them on the left of him. He put his shoes on the left of him. So when the people saw him doing this, ألقوني They took off their shoes. And everyone praying behind him They saw him take off his shoes Everyone praying behind him Took off their shoes So when the Prophet Sallallahu Finished his prayer He said What made you Take off your shoes? Because he turned around And everyone wasn't wearing their shoes They'd all been wearing shoes And now none of them are wearing shoes They said We saw you take off your shoes So we took off our shoes This is how the companions used to be. We saw you take off your shoes, so immediately we all took off our shoes. The Prophet ﷺ said, Indeed, Jibreel ﷺ came to me and he told me that there was something impure on my shoes, so that's the reason that I took them off. So you can see the severity of the level to which the companions used to follow the sunnah. The level to which they used to follow the Sunnah. The level to which they used to give listening to the Sunnah. Umar ibn al Khattab radiallahu ta'ala And this is narrated by Imam al Bukhari that he said, Kuntu ana wa jarun li minal ansar. He said, Me and my neighbor from the ansar. We used to share out, spending time with the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He used to spend a day, and I used to spend a day. So if I was the one who spent a day with him, then I would go to my neighbour and tell him everything that happened on that day. And on the next day that, that he spent the time with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam he would do the same fa'ala mithla ذَلِكِ he would do the same so what do we see from this umar used to give used to go basically what we would call part time work he used to work half of the time and the other half of the time he would give to, to spend with the prophet sallallahu alaihi but the day that he was working he would send his neighbor to go and spend that day with the prophet sallallahu And then the neighbor would come and tell him everything that happened. And the same thing when he would go and work, his neighbor would go and work the job, and he would spend the day with the Prophet ﷺ, and then they would do the same. This is the level to which that they used to give attention to the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah ﷺ. Add to that, what is narrated by an Imam al-Bukhari from Uqbah, Ibn al-Harif. That a woman informed him that she had breastfed him and his wife. And he had got married. And then a woman came after some time and said, I suckled you and your wife. Meaning that you are brother and sister, but you didn't know it. When he heard this, immediately, he was in Makkah, he got onto his riding beast, and he rode all the way to Medina. And he didn't stop. He didn't stop to say, to organize his things, let me go in two weeks, let me go tomorrow, I'll arrange, inshallah, two, three days' time, or let me read and see what the Quran says he got on his riding beast and he rode from Makkah to Medina until he reached the messenger of Allah sallallahu and he asked him about the ruling of someone that marries a woman he doesn't know that he, she is his sister from uh, breastfeeding and then a woman comes and informs them about this then the Prophet ﷺ said to him كَيْفَ وَقَدْ How can you remain married when this has been said? And then he returned to Makkah. You see the amount of dedication that they were willing to just to hear a sunnah from the Prophet ﷺ. Add to that I mean, what happened after the death of The Prophet. And I'm going to give you two examples, which we'll come to in maybe in more detail later on. The first example is an event which happened between Umar ibn al Khattab, Radiallahu'an, and Abu Musa al Ashari. Abu Musa came to the home of Umar and he knocked on the door, and Umar didn't answer him. So he knocked again And Umar didn't answer him So he knocked a third time And when Umar didn't answer him He left Then Umar caught up with him And he said Ya Abu Musa Limadha O oh Abu Musa Why did you leave my door? I mean, what, what made you leave? He said, because the Messenger of Allah said, if one of you seeks entry to a place three times and you knock on the door three times, and you are not given permission to come in, then go leave, and turn away, go back. Umar said to Abu Musa, Wallahi, you will bring me a witness or I'm going to do this and that to you. In another narration, Wallahi, you will bring me a witness or I'm going to beat you with a painful beating. So Abu Musa went until he passed by a group of the people of the Ansar. And he said, which of you will testify that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam said this? They said, Wallahi, no one will be a witness for you except the youngest one among us. And he was Abu Sa'id al-Khudri. And so Abu Sa'id went with Abu Musa to Umar. And he testified that he had also heard this from Umar. And in some of the narrations, Umar says something very significant. He said, Wallahi, he said, by Allah, I, would, I did not consider you to be a liar I did not consider you to be lying But I wanted the people to know That speaking about the messenger of Allah is shadeed Speaking about the Prophet wasallam is not an easy thing So the purpose of Umar going and asking for that witness Is not that we don't accept the hadith from one person Because Umar himself accepted a hadith from one person in numerous times. And it's not the fact that Umar doubted the truthfulness or the memory of Abu Musa. But Umar wanted to teach the people a lesson. Don't just go around saying, I heard the Prophet saying this, I heard him saying this, he said this to me, I think he said this. Be careful. That whatever you say, you are willing to go and look for a witness who will bear witness that you are going to. He said the same thing. And bear this, keep this story in mind when we go to the story of Aisha radiAllahu anha with regard to Abdullah ibn Amr. Ibn al-As, radiallahu anhumah. And this is narrated by Muslim from Urwa Ibn al-Zubayr. So just so everyone remembers, Urwa Ibn al-Zubayr, rahimahullah, is the son of the noble companion as zubair ibn al-awwam urwa was a tabi'i he did not see the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was married to asma bint abi bakr radiyallahu anhumā and that means that urwa was aisha's nephew He Urwa, he says, Aisha said to me. So Urwa, he was known for taking many, many ahadith from Aisha because he was a mahram for her. So it was not difficult for him to go and learn ahadith from Aisha radiallahu anha. He said, Aisha said to me one day, may Allah be pleased with her, "Yabna ukhti, oh son of my sister." It has come to me, or it has reached me, that Abdullah ibn Amr is coming by our place and he's going to pass by us going to hajj so i want you to go and meet him and ask him because he has memorized a great amount of knowledge from the messenger of allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Urwa said i met him and i asked him about some things that aisha or that some things that he mentioned About from the Prophet sallallahu And one of the things he mentioned And then he mentions the hadith and The hadith that he learned from Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As Urwa said So when I told Aisha about this She made it a big thing And she rejected it from him I And mean, she, she made it into a, a big thing and she rejected it. I and mean, she criticized it. She said, أحدثك أنه سمع النبي صلى الله Did he tell you that he heard the Prophet صلى الله saying this? Urwa said, When the next year came, Aisha said to me, Indeed, Abdullah ibn Amr has come. So go and meet him. And accompany him until you ask him about the hadith that he said to you last year. Urwa said, So I met him and I asked him. So he mentioned to me, similar to the thing that he had mentioned to me the first time. Urwa said, So when I told Aisha about this, she said, I believe that he has told the truth. I see that he has not added a single word or removed a single word. And if you look at this very carefully, this hadith from Umar and the Hadith or this this Athar from Umar and the Athar from Aisha radiallahu anhuma, they tell you what? That the science of checking a hadith was present among the companions. This is the science of al-jarh wa al-ta'dil, Of checking the narrators, of verifying. And who is doing this? Aisha radiallahu anha. She's testing Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As. She's testing him. And this was not a one-off occurrence. In fact, there is an entire book which gathers all of the Narrations in which Aisha criticized narrators for certain hadith And verified it later on or didn't verify it later on And the answer to that Because none of the Sahaba are worthy of criticism But what is Aisha doing? She's teaching the tabi'een That these hadith, they need to be checked Because tomorrow it won't be Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As Who is narrating hadith to us Tomorrow it will be someone from the tabi'een who does not have the praise of Allah azzawajal for them and does not have the guarantee from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that they're telling the truth. So what did she do? She tested him over one year. When he passed by, first of all, she had heard he narrates a lot of hadith. So I'm suspicious. Why does he narrate a lot of hadith? Is his memory good or is he narrating hadith that are not And he hasn't memorised properly So she tests him And she sends Urwa And Urwa is from the most reliable narrators Among the tabi'een So she sends Urwa To memorise the hadith And when Urwa comes the next year The same hadith He hasn't added anything Or taken anything away And so Aisha says Now I'm satisfied That he's told the truth when I saw that over the period of one year, he never added a single word or never took away a single word, this shows me that he is dhabit. He has memorized this hadith with precision from the Messenger of Allah wasallam. Look at what Umar is teaching. He's teaching every hadith that you say you must be willing to bring a proof for it. You must be willing to stand up in front of the people and say, I heard this hadith, who will bear a witness with me? And bear in mind that again as we emphasize, this does not mean that you have to have a witness for every hadith. Because this was not the action of Umar. But Umar wants to teach them that you should be willing to do this. You should be so confident in what you say, that even when you're threatened with being beaten, you're not scared. I've memorized this hadith. I know it, word for word. But he wanted to teach the people that don't just say any old hadith about the Prophet wasallam. So if we continue on then to look at the effect that had upon the Sahaba, we see that the Prophet ﷺ, when he said Whoever lies about me deliberately, let him take his seat in hell And he said And in a narration, Whoever narrates from me a hadith That he believes is false And he sees it to be false he sees it not to be correct And the meaning of kathib in the language of the Arabs Is something which is not the truth It's not necessary that the meaning of kathib should be That somebody deliberately made it up And the word al-kathib in Arabic is al khata It's a mistake Or it's al-ikhbaru khilaf al-waqi' It's to tell something which is in opposition to reality So they took this hadith, the companions, to the utmost level of severity. Whoever narrates a hadith from me, you are, yani he just has the, yani he sees from it, and yani it's, it's clear to him that this hadith is false. He is one of the two liars. Or he is one of the liars, two narrations. The hadith is narrated, and it's narrated as one of the two liars and it's narrated as one of the group of the liars the two liars meaning the first one is the one who invented it and the second one is the one who transmits that hadith from the one who invented it or one of the liars one of the group of the people who lie about the Prophet and this is extremely important because in our day and age the number of people who narrate and pass on Ahadith that they have a very good idea that this hadith is fabricated or that this hadith is extremely weak, this has become like something normal over WhatsApp, over Facebook, just sending a hadith. Nobody cares. Is it authentic? It's not authentic. And some of the ahadith, Wallah even a six or a seven year old child can tell that it's fabricated. You don't even need to know the science of hadith. The hadith is so ridiculous and so far away from being from the speech of the Prophet ﷺ that you look at this hadith and you know for certain that it's fabricated. You don't even need to check it. Just the wording is not the way that the Prophet ﷺ spoke. And it's not the, it doesn't have the beauty, it doesn't have the meanings in it. And these people will send you a hadith that whoever does this five hundred and nine times, and then this six hundred and nine times, and then this seven hundred and nine times, and this eight hundred and nine times, and this nine hundred and nine times, and then they write this is from the Prophet ﷺ. For all life, somebody does this to you. Send him back this hadith: "Man Anni bi hadith in yura kathib, fahu ahadul kathibin. Whoever sends a hadith, speaks about a hadith, informs a hadith, and he has an idea. Not even that he يعني, is the liar. He just has an idea that this hadith he's is narrating is false. He is one of the liars. Oh, that very, very, very serious thing. So let's see what was the effect this had upon the companions. It's narrated from Anas رضي الله an, that he said, لَوْ أَنِّي an أَنْ لَحَدَّثْتُكُمْ سمعتها من رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم او قالها رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم وذلك اني سمعته يقول من كذب علي متعمدا فليتبوأ وَمَقَعَدَهُ من النار انس رضي الله عنه said, if it were not for the fact that i feared i would make a mistake i would have narrated to you many things that i heard from the messenger of allah صلى الله عليه وسلم or he said Notice how close the narrators The narrators even give you Or he said That the messenger of Allah Sallallahu alaihi said But I, the reason I am not telling you All of these hadith Is because I heard him say Whoever lies about me deliberately Let him take his seat in hell And it's narrated from Ibn Sirin That he said And Ibn Sirin rahimahullah The great imam of the tabi'een That he said Anas used to be Qaleel hadith He didn't used to narrate Many hadith From the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam And every time He would narrate a hadith From the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam He would say Aw kama قال Rasulullah Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Or As the Messenger said In other words He would narrate he, This is towards The older As Anas became older and As Anas ibn Malik As he became older Because he lived and it is said that he was the longest or the last of the Sahaba to die and, he, and some of the scholars say maybe not the last But among the last of the Sahaba to die Anas as he became older He became Qaleel hadith He didn't used to narrate Hadith from the Prophet at all Very little And every time he would narrate a Hadith He would say This is the Hadith Or what the messenger of Allah Sallallahu said And he would put a statement at the end أو كما قال أو, أو, It was like that That's how he said it In case he made a mistake Because he was so scared Now look at this hadith مَنْ كَذَبَ علي This hadith مَنْ كَذَبَ علي من النار. Whoever lies about me deliberately Let him take his seat in hell This hadith is narrated about the one who deliberately fabricates a hadith from the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa And yet Anas took it as what? He took it as even if you make a mistake in a hadith. So he used to, they used to take it so seriously that even if there was a chance of making a mistake, they wouldn't narrate the hadith. That is how seriously the companions took it. And Al-Sha'bi and Ibn Sirin narrate from Abdullah ibn Mas'ud that if he used to say a hadith from the Messenger of Allah, وسلم, and his, his face used to, his face used to like, I don't know what the, how you say the word, his face used to darken, and he used to become scared. He used to say, like this or something almost like this It was like this or something almost like this And that's how they used to become And their face used to become scared they Used to get worried And they used to say It was like this or something similar It was like this or something similar And a shahbi narrates I sat with Ibn Umar Or I accompanied Ibn Umar For an entire year فَلَمْ أَسْمَعْهُ يذكر عن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم. I never heard him narrate a single hadith from the Messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم. He said, I accompanied Ibn Umar for a year and I never heard him narrate a single hadith because of how scared he was at that time of making a mistake. And we have to understand these narrations in context. That doesn't mean that Ibn Umar never narrated hadith. But that whenever they felt that they could not narrate the hadith accurately or they might have forgotten it, the companions would remain silent. And then there is the famous narration of Abdurrahman ibn Abi Layla. Rahimahullah ta'ala, the famous tabi'i. He said, I met 120 from the Ansar. From the companions of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam And not one of them narrated a hadith Except that he wished his brother would narrate it for him And he said, I met 120 of the companions Every one of them, when he would narrate a hadith He's looking at his brother that you narrate it instead Because he's scared he would make a mistake And none of them were asked a fatwa for anything except that he wished his brother would answer for him. None of them would be asked a fatwa in anything. Forget a hadith. None of them would be asked a fatwa except that he would look and wait for his brother to answer. In one narration it says, ahadu أَحَدُهُمُ الْمَسْأَلَةِ One of them would be asked a question, and he would pass it on to the next, and he would pass it on to the next, and he would pass it on to the next until it came back to the first person who was asked. You can imagine that. You have a big group of companions. He says, ask him. He says, ask him. He says, ask him. So you should add, No, 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 don't ask me. Ask him. Ask him until it comes back to the first person who said to ask the other one. This is how scared they used to be over narrating ahadith and narrating rulings in Islam. And wallah, is the truth, those scholars who said that you now have people, wallah, they only learned Islam yesterday. They give fatwa in issues that Umar ibn al-Khattab would have gathered the people of Badr to give a fatwa about. If Umar were asked about it, he would have gathered the people of Badr. I would have gathered all of the senior companions together and said, What do you think about this issue? And you get somebody who Allah learned Islam yesterday giving fatawa on these issues. This is a big issue, a big problem. And it's one of the reasons of the facade that exists in our time. Because very, very, very any junior individuals give fatawa on issues that affect the whole ummah. Issues that would be very serious in the sight of the companions. And yet you see, how were the companions? Every one of them wished that his brother would answer the question. And As Sa'ib ibn Zayd narrates that I went out with Sa'ad to Makkah. So he, I did not hear him narrate a single hadith from the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Until he came back to Al Madina. And this is narrated by Mnumaja uh, in his introduction to his Sunan. And on the chapter of being careful of narrating hadith, and Al Darimi on the chapter of the person who is and he's scared. Or who runs away from giving a fatwa Because he's frightened he might make a mistake And from Abdurrahman ibn Abi Layla That he said We said to Zayd ibn Arqam Why don't you narrate us a hadith From the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam He said Kabirna wa nasina Wal hadith an Rasulillahi Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam shadeed He said we have become old and we have forgotten And narrating hadith from the messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Is shadeed It's a serious matter And this is how we understand the rest of the ahadith Because somebody might look at those other athar And say Okay why do we have ahadith in Bukhari and Muslim now? This is how we understand them That these narrations were from the companions As they approached the end of their lives as they had become older, and as the events were not as fresh in their memory, and they show not the fact that the sunnah has not been preserved, they show that whatever has reached us from them reached us from them when they were absolutely certain of every single word that they narrated, and that can be understood most clearly by this statement of Zaid ibn Arqam radiAllahu an. That he said, Kabirna wa nasina, we have become old and we have forgotten. And narrating a hadith from the Messenger of Allah is something serious. And this continued in the generation of the Tabi'een, and it was passed down in the generation of the Tabi'een. And if we look at the generation of the tabi'een And we look at what changed Or even towards the end Of the generation of the Sahaba And the elder Sahaba And people like Ibn Abbas رضي الله They began to ask Where did you hear this from? And there is a very famous incident That happened with Abdullah Ibn Abbas That we can probably conclude the generation of the Sahaba with when a man began to talk to him about a hadith from the messenger of Allah that man was a tabi'i he came into the masjid quite rudely in all honesty and basically told Ibn Abbas you have to listen to me I'm going to tell you a hadith so Ibn Abbas covered his ears he just ignored him he either covered his ears or he turned away from him he just blanked him and the man said, What is the matter with you? I'm telling you a hadith from the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He said, There was a time when somebody used to narrate a hadith from the Messenger of Allah وسلم, and we would turn our heads towards them. And there was a time, and Ibn Abbas is telling, there was a time when if a person said, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa said, we used to turn our heads towards them. And look at what he's going to say. And give our full attention. But after what has happened, and he used an expression, which is difficult to translate, but basically it equates to people became easy in lying. And people lying became something easy for people. Then, now, no. Now we are careful. Now we say to people, who did you hear it from? From whom did you hear this? And we make people give us the chain of narration We make people give us Who are the people in the chain? Who did you hear this from? Because the people began to They began to uh, Or they began to be the appearance of lying The appearance of bid'ah Imagine in the time of the Sahaba In that early time There was not a, such a thing as bid'ah It just didn't exist there was no such thing as innovation Because all of those companions Were following the sunnah And they were, those few tabi'een that were You know that they were just being born And they were just being raised They were raised up by that Elder generation of the companions following the sunnah The companions were present in every place In all of the cities of The Muslim world They were full of companions so there was no bid'ah and there was no lying. And if you want to see the example of how truthful people were, look at the example of Abu Sufyan radiallahu an, when he was not a Muslim with Heraclius. When he talks to him about how the Prophet Wasallam used to be. This is at a time when he's not a Muslim. The truth or telling lies was not known in the generation of the Companions. And it was not known that there were people even from among the non-Muslims who would tell lies And perhaps the munafiqeen and the, and that came from the Yahud they were the first group of people to, like, to have such a concept of telling lies otherwise even your worst enemy would tell the truth about you and telling lies was something that was very very rare extremely rare Even among enemies And even among enemies that they would uh, They would not tell lies about one another In general They were very truthful people And As we said There wasn't such a thing as Bidah Towards the later years of the companions Meaning the time when The only people left alive Were the younger companions who had grown old Like Ibn Umar and Ibn Abbas and Anas And so on. What happened was, many of the companions had died until you had cities where there was not many of the companions or any of the companions living there. And Islam had expanded to encompass many other regions and areas of the world where people were just coming into Islam from their own, you know, like from their own religions and they had still some previous. sort of confusion and what have you. And the munafiqeen after the death of Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu were able to cause a confusion within the ummah and the difficulties that happened at the time of Uthman and at the time of Ali ibn Abi Talib. Radiallahu and then later on, and then the spread of bid'ah, which we know from the the, Qadariya, from the in the hadith of, uh, of Jibreel in Sahih Muslim, These people who said that there is no qadr That they existed in the time of Abdullah ibn Umar And likewise the khawarij in the time of Ali ibn Abi Talib That when these things started to happen The companions changed They stopped taking hadith From everyone and anyone Because by the time you get to the time of Ali ibn Abi Talib You have the khawarij You have the The in the time of Abdullah bin Umar, you have the Qadariyah. You have different groups appearing. And these groups are, I and mean they have false ideas and false beliefs. And then the Munafiqeen have begun, begun to spread lies and, and fabrications in the Ummah. They began at the time of Uthman, saying things about Uthman that weren't true. And part of the reason that this, their attack against Uthman was successful is because people just never imagined that people would lie like when the munafiqun used to lie about Uthman, they just didn't imagine, like people could not get in their head that somebody might come to me and tell me something about someone that is a complete lie. Because it wasn't part of their culture, it wasn't part of their traditions. So this changed the way that the companions behaved towards the sunnah. And it meant that they did not used to just listen to anyone or just hear from anyone. Now they used to be careful. Who is telling me this? Have they memorized it? Of course, they all agreed unanimously that the companions are reliable. But now we're getting to an age where the tabi'een are growing older. And it's just as possible that this hadith might have come from one of those tabi'een as coming from one of those companions. And so now they are checking in detail. Who told you this? And there starts to be the science of Checking the isnad, of checking the chain of narration It starts to happen, even in the time of the sahaba The science of checking supporting narrations Established by Umar ibn al-Khattab The science of checking of al-jarhu al Established by Aisha anha. And you Bring us the narrator, let me see Is he memorized? He hasn't memorized If he hasn't memorized, I'm going to criticize him I'm going to say he's not memorized this hadith He's not, he doesn't have a good memory. It's established by the likes of Aisha radiallahu anha. So you see among the companions that they begin to fashion what we would now call the science of hadith. Checking narrations, asking who told you, refusing to listen to people who don't give you a proper uh, chain of narration and a proper background as to who told you this hadith checking the memory of the people who narrate many ahadith, checking for supporting narrations. I do you have a second narration that will support this one? This is all during the time of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. towards the later time of the Sahaba and the early time of the Tabi'een. But as we go further into the time of the Tabi'een, we see various features coming out which become even more clear The first that we see is their is huge effort of the tabi'een to memorize the sunnah And then we see them begin to ask about the chain of narration even more So instead of just being a one-off regarding the chain of narration now we start to see people asking about the chain of narration in details Asking for details and information And it becomes the norm That you don't just accept ahadith anymore Now Tell us who are the men that narrated this hadith to you one by one Number three They begin to study the situation of the people who narrate the ahadith They begin to study them in two ways Because really this only existed in the Sahaba As we say It only existed in the Sahaba From the point of view of teaching people to do it And Umar did not seriously believe That Abu Musa had narrated the hadith incorrectly Or that he had any religious reason Why he would not tell the truth Aisha radiallahu anha did not seriously believe that uh, Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As was narrating false ahadith. Because with the companions, the situation is different. Allah azza wa jal testified their truthfulness. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala testified to their religion. If we would accept the statement of Al-Imam Ahmad or Ali ibn al-Madini or Yahya ibn main regarding an individual then how about the statement of Allah Azzawajal praising that individual? That's a lot more powerful than just saying, Al-Imam Ahmed said he's thiqah. Al-Imam Ahmed said he's reliable. For the companions, Allah Azzawajal said that they are reliable. So we don't need any further investigation. The only thing we need to investigate with regard to the companions are, are they companions or not? That's it as soon as we know that they are a companion of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu we don't need to do any further research. Now someone might say, but in the science of Jarhwat al we look at two things. We look at the religion of the narrator and we look at the reliability of the narrator. Two separate things, broadly. We look at religion, i.e., were they a good Muslim free from lying, free from major sins, free from anything that would cause us to doubt their narrations. If that's the case, then we look at the precision of their memory. Because you may get somebody who is incredibly religious, but has a terrible memory and a terrible uh, ability to narrate things. So we might say, why don't we check the memory of the companions? Why? Okay, religion, Allah testified for them Why don't we check their, like why don't we say This companion, mashallah Sahabi, but his memory was poor For two reasons Number one, all of the ahadith that you have heard now, all of the aathar you have heard now Tell us what? That the companions had such a level of religion that they would not dare to narrate a hadith that they had any doubt in its reliability. That's the first reason. So in other words, their level of religion was so high that it covers not only religion but precision as well. Because it reached such a level that they would not dream of narrating a hadith unless they were absolutely sure of it. That's the first thing And you've seen the evidence from Zayd ibn al-Arqam From Anas ibn Malik From Abdullah ibn Mas'ud From Abdullah ibn Umar Of how cautious they were In the precision of their narrations The second thing we can say Is that the companions themselves As individuals Experienced these events actually happening And the one who experiences an event happening is not like the one who memorizes the event later on. Yeah? The one who experiences the event happening is not like the one who memorizes it later on. Later on, one of you might memorize something. Or for example, something I said in class. There's no doubt that the person who sees it and experiences it is not the same as the one who memorizes it in a a sitting, memorizes the story from someone and then passes it on. And the third thing that you can say is that the companions came from a generation where memorization was the primary means of transmission. Very few of them could read and write properly. And some of the people, and we're going to come to this when we talk about how the sunnah was written down. Some of the people may turn around and say, not much of the sunnah was written in the time of the companions. First of all, we're going to hear that that's not strictly true, because a lot of the sunnah was written. But anyway, it's a side issue. Even if we accept that to be true, which would be more reliable for the generation of the companions? For them to transmit reports verbally or in writing. And in other words, which one would lead to fewer mistakes? Which one would lead to fewer mistakes? Them writing or them transmitting verbally? Whoever says writing, this person is only speaking from their own personal experience. And they're not speaking from the reality of that time. The person who actually is aware of how things used to be at that time will undoubtedly say verbal transmission was more accurate for them than writing. And I would doubt something that one of them wrote more than something that one of them said. Because if you're not proficient at writing then writing can become a problem. And that's why the only companions who wrote hadith were those who were proficient in writing. Like Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al as very few of them wrote hadith because they were not proficient in writing. However, they were extremely proficient in verbal transmission. That was how they passed on all of their news. That was, that was and like when you see, for example, someone who is blind or partially sighted. Allah gives them an increase in their other senses. So their hearing is more sensitive, their touch is more sensitive. When Allah takes away their eyesight, He gives them additional power in their other senses. And likewise, when a person cannot read and write, and they're not used to relying upon writing to memorize things, in general, their memory is very strong, because they're not used to having any alternative. And you can see an example of this, even in in other aspects uh, today, when you look at the difference between the older generation today and the young children in regard to how they store information. Since the advent of Google and what have you and powerful search engines, younger people today find very little reason to memorize facts and figures and dates unless they're forced to do it in school. It's very, you find them, they have their own, like, it's not like the older generation who you will find will actually have kept things in their memory because they didn't have an alternative. And if they heard something, they didn't have an alternative just to search for it on Google. Whereas you find the younger generation that is coming up, they have grown up with being able to find every answer they need by just typing it in and pressing enter. And so they have far less reliance upon Keeping things in their memory that they have, you know, facts or figures or things that are important, because if they need them, they just recall them on Google. You can even see, if you look carefully, you can see that change in, in our time among people who have grown up relying upon technology and people who haven't. And it was not uncommon, I remember. And it's not, I remember in my, my, my grandmother and, you know, people of that age, they used to memorize phone numbers. They used to keep people's phone numbers in their memory. Like you find as a kid today who memorized even his father's phone number, it's, it's rare. Say, so why would I memorize his phone number? I have it stored here. He might memorize it from just doing it a lot. Danny, but generally, it's not like that. We don't, haven't kept phone numbers in our memory because we've become so used to the fact that you can just store them on your phone. You don't need to keep them in your memory. So you can see as circumstances change, and this is my point, As circumstances change, abilities change with it And in the time of the Sahaba Writing was a rarity And it was rare for people to be accurate in their writing And that's why the number of people who wrote the Quran and wrote the Hadith Were not that many out of the companions Because for them, writing was something which was difficult it was not easy for them to write accurately And remember that at that time Arabic was not precise also in the way that it was written Because it did not have for example A differentiation between a ba and a ta and a tha Or between a jim and a ha and a kha, Or a fatha or a dhamma or a kasra None of these things existed in the Arabic language in the written Arabic language. And so even the preservation of the Qur'an was a verbal pre- preservation. Yes, the Qur'an was written down. We know that the Qur'an was written down in the time of the Prophet wasallam, But the major means of preserving the Qur'an was not writing. It was the preservation in the hearts of the people. And if you want to understand that with regard to the Qur'an, You only need to look at what happened when Abu Bakr wanted to gather the Mus'haf. And likewise when Uthman wanted to standardize the Mus'haf. What did they use as their method of of bringing it together? The memorization that was in the hearts of the companions. They didn't say who's got the most complete writing and let me compare my writing to your writing. They said who memorized the whole Qur'an, let him check the writing is correct. So this is very important Because this is one of the, the doubts that people put into your mind That not many things were written down First of all, we do not accept this statement in the first place That not many things were written down As you're going to see as we go through the course Many, many ahadith were written down From Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As And Ali ibn Abi Talib And many of the companions who used to write ahadith But Why was writing not the main means of verifying hadith or even the main means of verifying Qur'an? Because writing was not as accurate in those days as memorization. And those people were a people who were accustomed to transmitting information by verbal tradition. That was how they did things and they were very good at it they used to transmit poetry, they used to transmit their lineages they used to transmit the stories of their of their forefathers they used to transmit the news of what happened in different cities all of it verbally that was what they were accustomed to, that was what they were used to as for the time of the tabi'een Then again what we see is we see slightly more writing But still in the generation, of uh, certainly the earlier generation The older group of the tabi'i You see that they are very similar to the sahaba in that regard That their primary means of transmitting information is still verbal But the number of people who write have increased And the number of ahadith that are written down are more than were written down in the time of the Sahaba. And we're going to come to this as we come onto the topic of how the sunnah was written down. So as we said, one of the features of the time of the tabi'een was checking the chain of narration. So if it were the case that we only started checking the chain of narration at the time of Imam al-Bukhari or the time of Imam Muslim, then yes, we can say now, mm, there's a doubt about this. You only started checking these chains after 200 years. That's not the case. Chains were being checked in the time of the companions towards the end. And by the time of the early generation of the tabi'een, checking the chain of narration became fairly normal. Not completely normal, Prevalent in every single person Especially the very older older, yani the, the ones who were born And lived among the companions For a long time But among most of the tabi'een And certainly by the younger generation Asking who narrated you the hadith Became absolutely the norm It's useful at this point To quote Some of what was narrated from al Muslim that he said in his, in his introduction to his sahih He said Know may Allah give you success That what is obligatory for everyone Is to know the difference between The correct narrations And those which are incorrect yani The healthy narrations from the ones that are sick And the reliable transmitters Of these narrations from those that are accused Of having flaws or faults And for them not to narrate Except that which is known For being correct And their narrators are known for being reliable And to avoid Those things which are narrated From the people who are accused of lying And those people who are and he staunch upon following their bid'ah. This is from an Imam Muslim in his Sahih. But why I narrated this or why I mentioned this is because then an Imam Muslim mentions evidences from the time of the Prophet sallallahu and the time of the companions to back this up. So he narrates from Abu Hurairah that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu said, There will be at the end of the time Dajjalun Kazzabun There will be people who are given the title Dajjal This doesn't mean the Masih Dajjal But Dajjal means a very great liar Kazzabun Absolute liars They will bring you a hadith That you have not heard Not you nor your father's wa iyahum. Keep away from them. They will not misguide you and they will not put you to trial. And this is in the introduction to Sahih Muslim. So he's saying the messenger of Allah wasallam told you that there will come people who will lie about the ahadith. So keep away from them and then they will not misguide you. Once again, the Messenger of Allah ﷺ said, "There will be at the end of time, dajjalun, Any severe liars. Kazzaboon. Extreme liars. They will bring you a hadith that you have not heard nor your fathers. So keep away from them. They will not misguide you and they will not put you to trial. Then Al-Imam Muslim narrated, this hadith from Mujahid that he said, Bashir ibn Ka'b al-Adawi came to Ibn Abbas. And he began to narrate hadith and say the Messenger of Allah said, the Messenger of Allah wasallam said. So Ibn Abbas began ignoring him and he refused to look at him. So he said, Oh Ibn Abbas, What's the matter with you that I don't hear you listening to my hadith? I'm telling you a hadith from the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and you're not listening to me. Ibn Abbas said, we, "We used to live in a time if we heard a man saying that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam said, we would turn our eyes and our ears towards him. But when the people and again this term I find it difficult to translate And basically the people began lying and they didn't see it to be anything big. We never took from the people except the ones that we knew. We only listened to the people that we knew. So you can see, now still, in this early, this, this, you know, this time of the Sahaba, Ibn Abbas is saying, only take from the men that you know. Don't take from the people that you don't know. And this is also from the people, I mean, Ibn Abbas is therefore one of the founders of the science of al-jarh wa ta'deel, of approving and criticizing narrators. Because he's now saying that what we would say in modern terms, You cannot take a hadith from someone who is majhulul hal, someone who we don't know the reliability of that person from their unreliability. This person is not majhul al ain because he's sitting in front of him and he's like, I know this person exists, he's here, but I don't know whether he is a reliable narrator or not a reliable narrator. So Ibn Abbas turned away from him and he turned his his eyes away and his ears away not listening to you. Because I only take from the people that I know. And it's narrated from Ibn Sirin. That he said his famous statement, إِنَّ هَذَا This knowledge is your religion. So check who you take your religion from. And Ibn Sirin, remember, is the, among the oldest of the tabi'in. Yani the ones among the tabi'in who lived most of their life among the, uh, among the Sahaba. Because yani. the tabi'in, we divide them into three. The elder, the middle, and the younger. So the younger tabi'in are those who only met one or two of the companions from those who lived a long time. Like Maybe they met Anas ibn Malik and that's it. The elder tabi'een are those who, and in general, they met all or most of the khulafa ar-rashidin. And they were from that age where they, they met most of the, uh, all or most of the khulafa ar-rashidin. And then the middle are those who are between them. And maybe they didn't... Uh, they didn't meet all of those older companions But at the same time Or elder companions But they are somewhere in between Ibn Sirin is from the elder Tabi'in And he said Indeed this knowledge is your religion What knowledge is your religion? The Sunnah And Ibn Sirin here is talking about The Sunnah of the Prophet Wasallam. This Sunnah is your religion so check who you take your religion from. And the statement is general. For who you take as a teacher, for who you take the ahadith from, for who you learn any uh, uh, Quran from and so on. This knowledge is your religion. So any knowledge that's a part of your religion, be careful who you take that knowledge from. And he said, and Ibn Sirin, لم يكونوا يسألون عن الإسناد. فَلَمَّا وَقَعَتِ الْفِتْنَةِ قَالُوا سَمُّوا لَنَا رِجَالَكُمْ فَيَنظُرُ إِلَىٰ أَهْلِ السُنَّةِ فَيُؤْخَذُوا حَدِيثُهُمْ فيأخذوا حديثهم وَيُنظَرُ إِلَىٰ أَهْلِ الْبِدْعِ فَلَا يؤخذ حَدِيثُهُمْ This is from Ibn Sirin that he said they did not used to ask about the chain of narration who is they here? they did not used to ask about the chain of narration From Ibn Sirin, they is the Sahaba. Because when Ibn Sirin is talking about the past, he's only talking about the people who were in his past. And they were the Sahaba. Because he's from the elder Tabi'in. So he's saying that they did not used to ask about the Isnat. But when the fitna happened, and the scholars of Hadith have a long discussion about which fitna is meant here. Is it the fitna of Uthman Or the fitna of what happened with Ali bin Abi Talib Or the fitna after that In various events that happened in the time of the tabi'in There's a lot of dis- disagreement about this what, Which fitna it was But when the fitna happened And I think if you take this in the light of what Ibn Abbas said When people began to lie and yani When the fitna happened The fitna that happened Probably at the time of Ali ibn Abi Talib Or after that where people began to lie. You know, people used to fabricate things about Ali. People used to fabricate things about Muawiyah. People from those camps who were not from the Sahaba. I mean, but people who were from their ignorant fools who gathered and became like I mean, a big crowd of people who were not from the Sahaba and were not even close to the Sahaba. Some of them used to narrate lies. They used to narrate lies about Ali or lies about Mu'awiyah, or lies about people who when the the trial happened, or when the fitna happened between the two of them and it said that there are other fitan, there are other things that happened in the life of Ibn Sirin after that, that he could be referring to but when the fitna happened they said, meaning the companions and the people elder to him but there's not that many of the tabi'een who are elder to him so generally he's talking about the companions they said, Semmu Lana show us who are your men. Meaning, who do you who did you hear this from? Tell us who did you hear this from? So they would look for Ahlul Sunnah and take their hadith. And they would look for Ahlul Bidah and they would refuse to take their hadith. And that means that this concept of Ahlul Sunnah and Ahlul Bidah is something that existed and it was common in the time of the, the, the last group among the companions and the early group of the tabi'een. And that's something amazing because it tells you that when people you know, say oh you, know, you people are always talking about bid'ah and don't take from ahl bid'ah and don't take from ahl sunnah and this is all we hear you talking about we say wallah we only have Ibn Sirin and the sahaba to copy. Because Ibn Sirin is saying that is what the sahaba used to do. That is what the elder Tabi'een used to do. And that's what the, those people in his level, who were, he's talking about the companions from the last group of them, and the Tabi'een from the eldest group of them, that, that kind of crossover generation, that they would say, lana rijalakum. Tell us who told you this. And then, if the people who told them this hadith were from Ahlul Sunnah, they would take their hadith. And if they were from Ahlul Bid'ah, they would reject their hadith. And from Abdan ibn Uthman al-Marwazi, that he said, I heard Abdullah ibn al-Mubarak say, the Isnad is from the religion. And if it were not for the Isnad, whoever wanted to say something would say something. The Isnad is from the religion. And having a chain of narration, this is from the deen. And that's why if you look at the early books of Aqeedah, and the early books, even books of of aqidah, books of even fiqh, books of any uh, usul and so on. What do you see? The early books, you see that they all have asanid and isnad. Nobody mentions anything without mentioning a chain of narration. Very rarely. And generally, the early early books on any topic, they're full of chains of narration. Even on the topic, even on topics that aren't related to hadith like even on the topic of aqeedah, who will say so-and-so told me, that so-and-so told me, that so-and-so told me, that we believe this. They bring chains of narration. And, they, and we understand from the statement of Abdullah ibn al-Mubarak, the, the isnad is from the religion. And if it were not for the isnad, whoever wanted to say something, would say whatever they wanted. And from Ali ibn Shaqiq That he said I heard Abdullah ibn Mubarak say Ala ru'us In front of everybody And so this is not something he said Like quietly to a couple of students and he, Ala ru'us he said it While all the people were sitting in front of him Leave the hadith Of Amr ibn Thabit Because he used to Kana salaf, Because he used to Say evil things about the Salaf and you look at this is in the generation of the tabi'in That now Al-Jarh Al-Ta'deel Has moved up a level And we have in this hadith From the Prophet Sallallahu That a man came to the Prophet Sallallahu And this is narrated by Aisha RadhiAllahu Anha That a man came to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi And the Prophet Sallallahu As the man came He said The Prophet Sallallahu Said bad about him He said Bi'sa Akhul What a terrible brother uh, Again, it's difficult to get that expression in English What a terrible brother of his people he is What a terrible son of his people he is And then when he came The Prophet ﷺ smiled at him And spoke nicely to him And Aisha asked him She said, O Messenger of Allah When he was coming You said those words about him And when he came to you You smiled and you were nice to him and then the Prophet ﷺ said his hadith regarding the worst of the people are those who the people يعني, keep away from them out of a fear of their evil. Or as he said, wasallam. But the point is here that this is the foundation of the permissibility of al-jarh al-ta'adid. Of criticizing individuals when there is a need to do it. Because the Prophet ﷺ warned Aisha about this individual. Behind his back, and he was not there, he warned Aisha about this individual. He said, what a terrible brother or what a terrible son of his tribe he is. And then now, when we get to the generation of the tabi'een, we see that speaking about the narrators is also something which is done in front of everybody. It's not something that just like privately, he says, you know, just don't take from this guy. Publicly in front of everybody Don't take from the hadith of Amr ibn Thabit Why? فَإِنَّهُ كَانَ السَّلَفِ He used to speak evil of the salaf And he used to speak evil of the early generations This is also in the muqaddimah of the Imam Muslim Narrated He used to speak evil of the early generations Again, for Abdullah ibn Mubarak Who are the early generations? The tabi'een, the Sahaba. So if you found a person speaking ill of the Sahaba Or speaking ill of the Tabi'in, This person is mubtadi' He's an innovator We don't take his hadith anymore now Because this is an individual who is known for Cursing the companions Or cursing the early generations And then we have a narration from Yahya ibn Sa'id That he said, I asked Sufyan Thawri and Shu'bah and Malik and Ibn uyaynah About a man who is not reliable in his hadith Now here, the word used here is Thabt Meaning he's a good person He's a good person, he's a good individual But he's not he's not precise in his hadith so a man comes and asks me about him they said tell that man that he is not reliable because the people here they were frightened of riba, they were frightened of backbiting so he said what should I do if a man comes to me and asks me about a man that I know that man is not reliable he's a good person a good Muslim He's my brother in Islam, he prays, he fasts He has the right belief The right aqeedah, everything But I know he's not reliable in transmitting hadith What should I do? And he's not there And it's, it's backbiting and he's, he's in front of me Like this man is away this, this man I'm speaking about He can't hear what I'm saying What shall I do? They said tell, tell that man that he's not reliable And this is from the examples that Imam al Nawawi gave of when backbiting is permissible and when there is an urgent need, like in the verification of the authenticity of hadith. Because if we said that it's backbiting and we can't say it, the hadith of the Prophet would be would be lost. But the point we have here is that in the early generations we have people checking narrators. We have people refusing to take hadith without an isnad. We have people who are telling people that be careful who you take from. We have people warning against people saying don't take from so and so. Because he had a bad belief, his belief was wrong. We have people saying that go and warn people about so and so and so and so that he's not reliable in the hadith. So they're starting to check precision as well as checking Religion, because checking religion came first And it seems to me, and Allah knows best That most of the, the elder tabi'in, Their discussion about people was like we said Is he from Ahl-Sunnah or is he from ahl Bidah? If he's from Ahl-Sunnah, we take his hadith Because still, verbal transmission was very strong And still the people were at such a level that If he was from Ahl-Sunnah you, he would be unlikely to make a mistake But very quickly they start to see That there are people who are making mistakes Who are good people Who pray, who fast, who have the right belief, everything But they, are not, they, they keep narrating things the wrong way And bear in mind what it means to narrate something the wrong way We mentioned this in the explanation of al Bayquniya. That if someone gets something right Half the time They're considered to be Fahishul الْغَلَطُ yani extremely, extremely weak And if they narrate to you 10 hadith And 5 of them are right They're considered to be extremely weak yani We don't take any of their hadith Now look at the level that the sunnah is preserved Somebody gets something right 50% of the time fahishul Ghalat. We don't take any of his hadith Nothing Somebody gets things right Like 60-70% of the time And he narrates 10 hadith 7 of them are correct 3 of them are wrong He Sayyid ul He has a weak memory And his hadith are da'if Unless he has a supporting chain The one who gets it 50% of the time We don't even take a supporting chain for him And he's like Put him on the side Is not even worth considering the one who gets 70% in the exam, the one who gets 70% right, he is Sayyi ul Hifth and he has a weak memory and his hadith are da'if. We don't take his hadith unless he brings a supporting narration. The one who gets, you know, 90% right, this one we say is Hassan and it's fair. It's, we take his hadith, but if his hadith contradicts someone more reliable, we leave his hadith Because he only got 9 out of 10 The standard that is required From the narrators Who were considered to be rijal thiqat, the, the, the reliable narrators Is a standard that is just unbelievable You're talking about people Who narrate for you 95 Who narrate for you 100 hadith And 98 of them they get right 99 of them they get right. These are Rijal al-Sahih. These are the men who are reliable. As for the one who's 95, 90, 93 like this, this person is okay, we will take his hadith. But if he contradict somebody else, we're gonna, we're gonna leave it. As for everyone less than that, they're weak in the first place. We don't take their hadith unless they bring a supporting chain. And if they get down to like 50-50, we don't take their hadith at all. That is the level of, and the standard to which we hold the narrators of hadith. And that's why in reality when someone said the last of the huffaz was Imam al Allah, he was not like far from the truth. Because the reality is that almost nobody came after that who can have any claim to hifth. Because the standard that was put for memorization or for writing, and if the person was writing a hadith, That he only makes one mistake in a thousand, or one mistake in a hundred, or one mistake in five hundred. That just doesn't really exist anymore in reality. For for the most part, it doesn't exist anymore. And Abdullah ibn Mubarak, he said, I said to Sufyan al Thawri. That Abad ibn Kathir, his situation is known. And when he gives a hadith, he brings something really bad, really severe. And he, Amr when he gives a hadith, his hadith are. And he brings something very strange, very surprising. Do you think I should tell the people not to take his hadith? Sufyan said, Bala, of course you should. He said Abdullah Ibn al-Mubarak yani, He said So when I used to be in a sitting And Abad was mentioned I would praise him in his religion And say La wa'an. Don't take any hadith from him So this is a person Who Again What is his situation? Religiously he is a great Person, perhaps even a great scholar. But his memory is such that when he brings a hadith, Ja'abi Amr Azim, and he brings something really serious, and he turned the halal to haram and the haram to halal, and everything became mixed up. So he said that when I would speak about him in a gathering, what would I say? Abdul Amin al Mubarak, when he would speak about him in a gathering, Abdullah ibn Mubarak would say I would praise him in his religion And say to the people La تأخذوا Don't take any hadith from him And then Humaydi narrates from Ibn Uyayna That he said The people used to Take hadith From a particular individual Jabir Before things became clear So when things became clear, the people started to blame him or accuse him in his hadith. And some of the people left him. And uh, someone said to him, what is it that became clear? And he mentioned, Al-Imanu Bil-Raja'a, he mentioned uh, a matter of aqeedah. In the sense that when his aqeedah became clear, that his Aqeedah was not the Aqeedah of, of, uh, yani of Ahl al Sunnah, that his Aqeedah was incorrect, then at this point the people left his hadith. So you see this uh, from the point of per a person's religion and from the point of view of a person's precision. Meaning that by this time, within a couple of generations, you have in this early stage, you have people we are checking them for their religion, we are checking them for their precision. And from Ibn al-Mubarak that he said, if I was given the choice to enter Jannah or to meet Abdullah ibn uh, I think it is Muharrir, but I will check the The dubt of his name I would have I would have chosen To meet him And then enter Jannah And he said Abdullah ibn Mubarak If I was given a choice Between Going to Jannah And meeting this narrator I would choose to meet him And then go to Jannah And I wouldn't choose Not to go to Jannah But I would just say If I can meet him Before I go to Jannah And then when I met him and he said, like, when I met him, like, it's complete, it just went down in my eyes. Uh, he said, Aba'rah would have been more beloved to him than me. Uh, again, I'll check the translation to be exact. But like he, the meaning of what he's saying is that I was so keen to meet him that I would have said, like, just give me, I will go to Jannah, but just before, I, if I can just meet him first. Because of the number of ahadith he narrated from the messenger of Allah He said when I met him This became nothing to me Because he realized that his ahadith were yani, False or were incorrect And Ubaidullah ibn Amr Narrated that Zayd ibn Abi Unaysa said Do not take from my brother and he, Don't take hadith from my brother Abdullah bin Amr said his brother was Yahya ibn Abi Unaysa and he was a kathab. and yani he used to fabricate a hadith about the Messenger of Allah. So even to the point that one of them wouldn't even he would even warn the people against his own brother. He would even warn the people against his own against his own brother. And these narrations Are from these generations that came after. Not all of them are from the, not from the, the Tabi'in. Some of the earlier ones were from the Tabi'in, and some of them from the generation after that. But you can see that in these, like by the time that this is well before now, we're still before, well before Alimam, Al-imam Muslim or al-imam al-Bukhari, because they did not narrate directly from these individuals. And Imam Muslim doesn't narrate directly from these individuals. So we're still a generation above that. And that is the level to which the checking has reached. But you can see even from the generation of the Sahaba, even from the generation of the early generation of the Tabi'een and the later generation of the Tabi'een, that they're still checking the narrators, verifying the narrators. But now by the time you get to the next generation after that, for them... Checking the narrators is the norm, and warning against the narrators is the norm. The next thing that we want to talk about that gives us the confidence in the status of the Sunnah and the preservation of the Sunnah is a rihla fi talab al hadith. This issue of traveling for the sake of a hadith. And you can say in general Travelling for the sake of knowledge Travelling for the sake of Of getting knowledge First of all we should say And I think this is something that Ustaz Abdur-Rahman mentioned to you guys And I just want to just uh, kind of confirm it to you That the way that people used to do this is They used to first learn from the people that were available to them In their own city And this wallahi is the sunnah This is the sunnah As it was established by the Sahaba and the Tabi'een and those who came after them That you first of all learn from the people you have availability to, to In your own city Or in your own vicinity And when you feel you have taken from them everything that you can take And the most that you can learn or you have learned as much as you want to learn from them You travel And you go out and you go To learn a hadith And to learn religion To learn knowledge from the people in other places And that's what makes a person A person of knowledge really And those scholars who didn't go out And didn't travel are very few And generally they, ha- they are, they are you know, Often they have a lot of criticism around them Those that didn't travel And often Not always But often They have Words of criticism around them Except the one who happened to grow up in a center of knowledge For example, he happened to be born in Medina For him, he would not be criticized if he did not go out for a journey to learn a hadith Since the number of people narrating a hadith in that place at that time was so many That he had a reason to stay or the one that was born in Baghdad when Baghdad was a center of knowledge, or Damascus when Damascus was a center of knowledge. But generally, the consensus was that it is required for a student of knowledge to travel, and you can't learn knowledge sat at home. Yes, you begin with the people that are closest to you, and they may not be very senior people, and you may not have access to like very very knowledgeable people. But what you have. Scholars may visit your city, you visit them, you learn from them, but then you have to travel. You have to travel, because it's only when you travel, and you begin by just traveling within the country, to different cities, to meet different people, it's only when you travel that you gain that, you gain that knowledge, and you're able to develop that knowledge. And this is true in the science of hadith. But what we want to establish from this part of the lesson is, we want to establish the travelling to learn hadith was one of the major ways that hadith were preserved. Hadith were preserved from the time of the companions until the time when the hadith were written in the books. From the time of the companions until the time when the hadith were written in the, in the books. Travelling was a major, major means of verifying and confirming the authenticity of hadith. So in, the first, in this section we learnt about the status of the sunnah first of all. Then we learnt about the isnad and the importance of checking the narrators and how that developed. And now we're going to come to another reason why the hadith are authentic. And that is people travelling for the sake of hadith. The first thing that we should mention is the statement of Allah Azawajal in. Come not find the reference. Anyway, the statement of Allah This, for a long time I remember, this was one of the, I think, was the ayah that they used to record in the Islamic University of Medina as being the, uh, the, like, kind of the the founding statement of the university, like, the, the principle upon which the university was built. But in reality, it's the principle upon which journeying for knowledge is built. So there must be, from every group, an, a people who remain. Any meaning from every group that goes out in jihad. Volunt- this is involuntary, involuntary jihad. and This is not where the entire country is mobilized by the, by the ruler. Any this is in the case where there is a voluntary group goes out. And the ruler sends out a group of people. They must remain a group. لِيَتَفَقَّهُ الدين, To gain knowledge in their religion. And to warn their people if they come back to them or when they come back to them so that they might take heed. So this tells us that even in something as important as jihad fisa there has to remain a group of people who stay behind to learn their religion. There has to remain a group of people who stay behind to learn their religion. So that they can warn their people when they come back to it. And they based it upon the statement of the Prophet Whoever takes a path in which he is seeking knowledge thereby, Allah makes his path to Jannah easy. And this hadith is obvious Man salaka tariqan, whoever sets out on a journey, sets out on a path. To gain knowledge, Allah makes His path to Jannah easy. And this is why Ibn al-Salah, and he said, وَإِذَا فَرَغَ مِنْ سَمَاعِ الْأَوَالِ وَالْمُهِمَّاتِ أَلَّتِي بِبَلَدِهِ فَلْيَرْحَلْ إِلَىٰ غَيْرِهِ Ibn al-Salah said, if he has finished listening to the awali here we have to understand that uh, a sanad or a chain of hadith is either ali or nazil ali it, it means high and nazil means low but the meaning here really in English is the chain is either short or long a high chain is one that is short it has very few people in it And this is one of the major ways that the sunnah was preserved By preserving Al-Awali By preserving the chains that are very short Because even though you have narrators that are 99% accurate More than 99% accurate And he narrates a thousand hadith, he He doesn't even make a mistake Or he makes a mistake in one hadith out of a thousand Even if you have narrators to that level the more of those narrators you have in the chain The more likely it is that you're going to start getting mistakes So the scholars of hadith In order to get rid of this They try to get the shortest reliable chain possible Now that doesn't mean the shortest chain If the chain is not reliable But the shortest chain that is reliable And this is called Talab al isnad al-ali Seeking a high chain Meaning seeking a short chain Chain You've got the hadith With five people Between you and the messenger of Allah I'm going to go and find it with three people Same hadith I'm going to go find it with three people And that is why If the sheikh of your sheikh was alive They would try to travel to the sheikh of their sheikh To hear the hadith from him And this is one of the reasons That some of the scholars mentioned That Imam Bukhari is not narrated from In Sahih Muslim Yes, there was that incident that happened between uh, al duhari and between Al-Bukhari. But one of the major reasons why Imam Muslim doesn't narrate from Imam Al-Bukhari in his Sahih is Talib al al-Ali, looking for shorter chains. Why would I take it from Al-Bukhari when I, the teacher of Al-Bukhari, is available to me? I can go to, I've heard it from him, but now I'm going to go and hear it from his teacher, and that requires journeying. So if I say to you, oh, there's an amazing explanation of uh, Sheikh Abdul-Mahsin abbad for this hadith, why would you listen to it from me? Why wouldn't you go to Medina and listen to it from the Sheikh if you have the ability to understand it in Arabic? Why would you listen to it from me who's probably misunderstood half of it and you know, given you the wrong half and mistranslated and whatever? Why would you do that when you have the teacher available? You can go to the teacher. And this is when you're looking for, even when you're looking for... Um, Ijazat and things like that now Like if one of the brothers says to me I've got an ijaza in Sahih bukhari I'm going to say to him Who did you get your ijaza from? And he said I got it from Sheikh Zafar al-Hasan So I'm going to With him now I'm going to go and see Sheikh Zafar al-Hasan And say Sheikh This ijaza you have in Sahih bukhari Can I get it from you? He's going to say I got it from this sheikh I'm going to see is that sheikh still available If I can go to that sheikh I will go to that sheikh if I can't go to him, then I will get it from the highest chain possible, I and mean, from the shortest gap between me and between the person that I'm aiming for. And in the science of hadith, I'm aiming for it from the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And he saw the shortest gap between the person who is hearing the hadith and between the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So Ibn Al Salah said, if a person is done with The shortest chains they can find, and the most important hadith. Because sometimes a hadith is important because the chain is short, but sometimes the hadith is important because it's an important hadith, and nobody narrates this hadith except the sheikh. Or the topic of the hadith is extremely important. You've heard them in your country, in your country, in your area, Then let him go out and travel to find other chains of narration. And to find other important hadith. And just on that topic, and even on the topic of fiqh, because fiqh comes from the Quran and the Sunnah. Look at what happened to Imam al Shafi'i when he moved. And you have a Shafi'i in Iraq and a Shafi'i in Egypt. More than half of his opinions changed. Because of what? Because he traveled. And he heard other ahadith and other narrations that made him now see things in a different light. And that's one of the reasons why fiqh opinions change. And it's true. Like when I started out, I might have had an opinion on something based on I studied from a teacher in my city in Newcastle and he told me that this is the way to do it. And I went to Medina and I heard another hadith and I heard another narration about it, so I changed my opinion on it and then i went somewhere else and i met another sheikh and the sheikh told me another hadith that i didn't know about it before and your opinions can change because you're gaining knowledge from different areas and you're absorbing more information than you had before yahya ibn ma'in he said four people and this is a, like this is a bit of research for you okay like just as a I just want you to think about this You can think about this until next week This statement of Yahya ibn Ma'in Because it's a really strange It's a, it's a very interesting and somewhat strange statement Four people You don't expect any wisdom from them Four people Don't expect any wisdom from them The first one he says is Haris al-Darb Haris al-Darb I'll come back to that one inshallah The second one he says is Munad al qadi The one who calls out for the judge I mean the, one who, the clerk in the court Who announces the rulings of the judge Ibn al-Muhaddith the son of the scholar of hadith. وَرَجُلٌ يَكْتُبُ فِي بَلَدِهِ وَلَا يَرْحَلُ في الحديث. And a man who writes hadith in his country and never goes out to hear hadith in other places. I'll tell you the first two next time. But I want you to think about this one, Ibn al-Muhaddith. Why... Is it that the son of a muhadith, the son of a scholar of hadith, you don't expect to hear anything wise from them? Yani? Like, what is it? Why? What is the background behind the statement of Yahya bin Ma'in? Four people don't expect rusht, and yani? you don't expect to like be inspired by their wisdom. Yani? See if you can figure that one out. And it's narrated and from Ahmed bin Hanbal that it was said to him, should a man travel seeking the short chains of narration? He said indeed by Allah he should travel a great deal. He said Because al Kama And Al-Aswad Used to tell a hadith From Umar Radiyallahu an Or used to be told a hadith from Umar Radiyallahu And they would not be happy Until they went to Umar And heard it directly Meaning that and Imam Ahmad telling us That even in the generation of the tabi'een Seeking high chains of narration Was something important If a Tabi'i would say to another Tabi'i That this companion said this They would not be happy Until they went to that companion And asked him about the hadith So what does this tell us? That when you look at this And you think it's like this narration This narrator, this narrator It's not like that it's like a web of checking and cross checking that goes on every time a person hears a hadith the first question he asks himself is there any way that i can hear this hadith directly from the person or is there any way that i can hear it from another person who heard it from him and they go out looking for and that's why when we did sahih muslim we saw all those different chains ha wa haddathana so and so ha haddath this person this they're all looking for the quickest way they can get to the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam or the best way that they can they can hear the hadith from somebody closer to the one that they than the one they heard it from and ibrahim ibn adham radiyallahu an he said and it says here radiyallahu said Indeed Allah the exalted saves this ummah from trials because of the travelling of the people of hadith Indeed Allah saves this ummah from trials because of the travelling of the people of hadith and wallahi saw truth travelling of the people of hadith saved so many weak hadith from being presented to us and so many fabricated hadith were found out I think we might come to it But there's a beautiful story I And mean, just to finish off Because next time we're going to talk about The history of, of travelling and, sh- and prove that travelling for hadith Was done by the companions And it was done by the tabi'een And after them But there's a beautiful hadith Or a narration that happened with Shu'bah Ibn Hajjaj al-Wasiti The great scholar of hadith Shu'bah one, he, he, one of his students was, I and mean, he revising. I and mean, one of his students was; they, they were revising among each other. And one of them mentioned a hadith, and shu'bah overheard them. So shu'bah and he being, he's known for being very, very strong, very strict. He slapped him. He said, "So and so narrates this hadith from this person." The students say, yeah, so-and-so narrated it. So but without, that's it. He just got on his riding beast and he went. And he went on this journey from this city to this city to this city to this city. Chasing this Isnad. Because he could not believe that this person had narrated from this person this Hadith. So he went chasing the Senate until he reached an old man. And an old man who had this like Tasawwuf, this... Uh, Like Sufism type thing. He came to him and he said to this old man, it's reached me that you narrate this hadith from this person. Or you narrated this hadith. He said, yes, I fabricated this hadith when I saw the people and he turning away, he said something like, when I saw the people turning away from the book of Allah, we fabricated this hadith to bring them back. But you see how their mentality was. They heard a hadith That didn't sit with them Bring me the horse Bring me the camel I'm gonna go find it City to city to city Place to place Country to country Around the whole Muslim empire As it was known at the time Until he finds the person Who is the source of the hadith And then he finds that this hadith is fabricated And really this gives truth to the statement That Allah protected this nation from calamities and trials by the travelling of the people of Hadith And inshallah ta'ala in the next lesson We're going to start again with uh, this travelling for the sake of Hadith But we're going to look at inshallah the, uh, the history of it The companions who used to travel for the sake of Hadith The tabi'een who used to travel Some of the stories of their, of their travelling and, and what they did And inshallah, by next lesson, we'll start talking about how the sunnah was written down. Like We used to go back to the time of the Sahaba and say, who wrote down the sunnah in the time of the Sahaba? Who wrote down the sunnah in the time of the Tabi'een? Who wrote down the sunnah in the later generation of the Tabi'een? Who wrote down the sunnah in the next generation? And how was it written? What was the first book and how was it gathered? And then, slowly we understand that this sunnah that has reached us in the books of Al-Bukhari and Muslim and Abu Dawood and Nasai Tirmidhi and Ibn Majah and Muslim Imam Ahmad, and Muatta Imam Malik and all of these other books is reliable and has been preserved and recorded. And inshaAllah ta'ala uh, that will increase people's attention and dedication towards studying it bi-iznillah ta'ala and Allah azzawajal knows best.